there is one that has a head without an eye, and there's one that has an eye without a head. You may find the answer if you try, and when all is said, half the answer hangs upon a thread. This podcast is sponsored in part by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you and I to monetize a podcast. Podgo pays a flat rate for ad space and connects hosts instantly with potential sponsors no matter what the size of the podcast. Apply today to become a member at podgo.co. That is P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And tell them History Obscura sent you. Hello and welcome to tonight's episode of History Obscura. I am Mandy Gardner. And as I mentioned last weekend, the estate has inadvertently become host to this rude modern plague. Therefore, I have barricaded myself in the reading room and ordered the library tower sealed off from the outside. Do consider sending a refreshing cup of tea via buymeacoffee.com. Come to mention it, I could use a few chocolate biscuits as well. I'm not altogether sure that the berry bush I can just reach from my window is a boon or a curse. I suppose we shall soon see. Which brings me to tonight's story. Once upon a time... One William Hardacre, known to locals as Humbug Billy, sold sweets from a stall in the Green Market in central Bradford. Currently, this is the site of Bradford's Arndale Center, and Hardacre sold Humbugs, hence his nickname. Remember at the time that Humbugs meant something of a spectacle, something dazzling and fun, The word actually has nothing to do with Mr. Scrooge's frowning face. So, Humbug Billy purchased his sweets from a man called Joseph Neal, who made the candies, which he called lozenges, on Stone Street, just a few hundred yards north of Billy's market stall. The sweets in question were peppermint humbugs, made from peppermint oil incorporated into a base of sugar and gum. The gum came from the sap of a plum tree. The peppermint oil came from peppermint, but the sugar had a more complex history. Sugar was expensive at that time, a marked six and a half shillings per pound, and so Neil would often substitute powdered gypsum, which he called daff, for some of the required sugar in the recipe. On the occasion in question, on the 30th of October, 1858, Neil sent James Archer, a lodger who lived at his house, to collect this daff for Hardacre's humbugs from the druggist Charles Hodgson. Hodgson's pharmacy was three miles away at Bailden Bridge in Shipley, Hodgson was at his pharmacy, but he did not serve Archer, owing to an illness, and so his requests were seen to by a young assistant. 
The assistant asked Hodgson where the daff was and was told that it was in a cask in a corner of the attic. However, rather than daff, the assistant sold Archer 12 pounds of arsenic trioxide. The mistake remained undetected even during the manufacture of the sweets by James Appleton, who was an experienced sweet maker employed by Neil. Though Appleton did observe that the finished product looked different from the usual humbugs. Appleton was also suffering symptoms of illness during the sweet-making process and was ill for several days afterwards, with vomiting and pain in his hands and arms, but did not realize it was caused by the peppermint humbugs. Forty pounds of lozenges were sold to Hardacre, who also noticed the sweets looked unusual. He used this point to obtain a discount from Neil. Like Appleton, Hardacre, as one of the first to taste the sweets, also promptly became ill. Regardless, Hardacre sold five pounds of the sweets from his market stall that very night. Every two ounces of tainted candy cost one and a half shillings. Twenty-one people who bought the candy died and a further 200 or more became severely ill with arsenic poisoning within a day or so. The first deaths of two children were thought to be cholera. This was reasonable since cholera was a major problem in Britain at the time. The growing number of casualties soon showed that the purchase of lozenges from Hardacre's stall was the common denominator. From there, the police investigation led to Neil and Hodgson. Goddard was arrested and stood before magistrates in the courthouse in Bradford on the 1st of November, with Hodgson and Neil later committed for trial with Goddard, who had been the pharmacist's assistant, on a charge of manslaughter. Dr. John Bell identified arsenic as the cause and this was confirmed by Felix Remington, a prominent chemist and druggist, and analytical chemist. Remington estimated that each humbug candy contained between 14 and 15 grains of arsenic. Only 4.5 grains would be a lethal dose. Thusly sweetened, each candy contained enough arsenic to kill two people. Hardacre had sold enough of his candies to kill 2,000. The legal prosecution against Goddard and Neal was later withdrawn, and Hodgson was acquitted when the case was considered at York on the 21st of December, 1858. The tragedy and resulting public outcry was a major contributing factor to the Pharmacy Act of 1868, which recognized the chemist and druggist as the custodian and seller of named poisons. That was what they called medicine at the time. The requirement for record-keeping and requirement to obtain the signature of the purchaser is currently upheld under the Poisons Act of 1972 for non-medicinal poisons. This was by no means the only account of Victorians poisoning their very own food, 
The list of poisonous additives used at the time includes strychnine, cocculus inculcus, both being hallucinogenic, and copperus in rum and beer. Sulfate of copper in pickles, bottled fruit, wine, and other preserves. Lead chromate in mustard and snuff. Sulfate of iron in tea and beer. Ferric ferrocyanide, lime sulfate, and turmeric in Chinese tea. Pardon the mention of turmeric, it's simply exotic and must be added. Copper carbonate, lead sulfate, and bisulfate of mercury and Venetian lead in sugar confectionery and chocolate. There was lead in wine and cider, and all of these were extensively used, and all of them have an accumulative effect, resulting over a long period in chronic gastritis and, of course, eventually, fatal food poisoning. Red lead gave Gloucester cheese its healthy red hue, while flour and arrowroot a rich thickness to cream. Tea leaves were dried, dyed, and recycled again. As late as 1877, the local government board found that approximately a quarter of the milk it examined contained excessive water, or chalk, and 10% of all the butter, over 8% of the bread, and 50% of the gin had copper in them to heighten the color. Luxury items were hardly any better. The London County Country Medical Officer discovered the following samples in ice cream. Lice, cotton fiber, bedbugs, bugs legs, fleas, straw, human hair, and cat and dog hair. Ice cream such as this caused scarlet fever, diarrhea, and diphtheria. The Privy Council estimated in 1862 that one-fifth of butcher's meat in England and Wales came from animals which were considerably diseased or had died of pleuro-pneumonia, a common meat pie served to all people at the time would have liquid fat poured into any steam holes left open, and it was left to solidify. It might even be kept up for a year, with the crust apparently keeping out air and spoilage. Bread was no better. You could find potatoes, ground bones, plaster of Paris, lime, and pipe clay often added to bread, as was sulfate of copper and alum. Alum was used in the dyeing and tanning industry, and it increased the weight of bread and added whiteness. Not fatal, it did cause severe indigestion and constipation. Just one year after the Bradford Sweets poisoning incident, another poisoning event occurred with six boys from a boarding school in Clifton, near Bristol. They bought some bath buns from the shop of a confectioner named Barr. Within half an hour of eating them, they fell violently ill with a horrible sickness and other symptoms of an irritant poison. The quick thinking of a doctor in using emetics to empty their stomachs meant that five of the boys soon recovered. 
Unfortunately for one of the boys, the poisoning almost proved fatal. He'd been greedier than the others and had eaten three of the buns. He remained writhing in agony for a number of hours and fell into a state of collapse. Eventually, he did recover. The schoolboys were not the only people affected by this batch of bath buns. A publican called May also bought some for himself and his brother, and they likewise suffered horrid tortures for nine hours. When he got better, May complained to the magistrates, but as he had not been poisoned outright, there was no case. Had he died, of course, a manslaughter case might have been brought to the court. Preliminary investigations revealed that Farr regularly colored the buns with chromate of lead without being aware of its dangers, and at first it was supposed that this time he had carelessly used too much. However, when the buns were analyzed by Dr. Frederick Griffin of the Bristol School of Chemistry, it was discovered that the coloring matter was, in fact, yellow sulfide of arsenic in the proportion of six grains to each bun. It turned out that, in this instance, the druggist had mistakenly supplied Barr with sulfide of arsenic, a much more deadly poison than the slower-acting chromate of lead. No action was taken against the confectioner or the druggist, because the poisoning was accidental. Dr. Griffin wrote to the Times, arguing that many of the obscure chronic and dyspeptic complaints, now so prevalent, are due to the systematic adulteration of articles of food with unwholesome or slowly poisonous materials. This was probably also the reason for the large numbers of adverts in Victorian newspapers offering indigestion remedies. Thank you for listening. This podcast exists due to donations of loose change, cups of tea, and occasional cat treats from listeners just like you. Please consider lending your support. Thank you. Good night. (laughs) 